17 propositions. Come vote and have your say. Prop 51's the first one. Nine billion in school bonds. 52 deals with state hospital fees and Medi-Cal matching funds. Prop 53 requires, should the state want revenue bonds, to first ask California voters for their permission. If we pass Prop 54, the public gets to see that was actually recorded way before P. Diddy really changed his sound. Uh, you would barely know it was him. No, actually, that's um, uh, something that was uh, released in 2016. It's called The Proposition Song, written by the California Voter Foundation. Because I think it's fair to say California is the <laughs> is the golden land of, of ballot initiatives here in the United States. I may, that might not turn out to be true, but in my perception, shaped by my great age and the fact that I... Remember back to 1978 with Proposition 13 and Howard Jarvis. It just seems like there's always like a lot of ballot initiatives there. In fact, that particular year, there were 17 propositions, which is why in order to help you remember them, they wrote a possibly unmemorable song. Uh, so we're going to talk about ballot initiatives today or ballot measures. Uh, and we are going to do that in several different ways, as we typically do. A little bit later, you'll hear about kind of a one-man campaign or a campaign that really began with one man in Florida uh, to restore voting rights to people who had served sentences for felonies. Um, And you're going to hear towards the end about some of the more whimsical, shall we say, ballot initiatives that have appeared on ballots uh, across the country. But right now we're going to kind of refresh your memory from eighth grade physics class and then uh, physics from eighth, eighth, eighth grade civics class. Although there are some ballot measures that probably would you know, need some physical analysis. Uh, and, and we're going to also kind of tell you the state uh, of this whole uh, direct democracy uh, here in America right now. We're going to do that with Dane Waters, the founder of the Initiative and Referendum Institute at the University of Southern California. Uh, welcome to our show. Uh, thanks for having me, Colin. And by the way, I failed physics, so please don't ask me about any physics, okay? <laughs> All right. I'll sneak it up on you. You'll barely know it's coming. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe before we even talk about the history of it, I think maybe people need an update from eighth grade civics. There's direct democracy kind of comprises things like initiative, referendum, and recall. That's what I remember Mr. Miner teaching me anyway. Uh, and so maybe just remind us what all those things are. Uh, of course. So in the United States, um, in the 50 states, uh, we have referendums and initiatives. Now, and, and since the beginning of our country, the citizens have been ratifying constitutional amendments or referendums. Those have been around since the very beginning. The only state that does not require the people to ratify a referendum is Delaware. They can do that just by the by a vote of both houses. So that's from the beginning of our country. And fast forward to the progressive era, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, where the citizens decided, hey, we want more say in things. Uh, We don't want to replace representative government. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, they say, and get rid of all lawmakers. So during that era, they they established the initiative process. Now, the initiative process is where the citizens go out and collect signatures, put the issues on the ballot and the people vote on them. Now that process is only available in 24 states. Um, it's, it's a highly regulated process. Um, so that's kind of the history lesson between initiatives and referendum. Right. Um, it's kind of interesting. We don't necessarily think of South Dakota as the cradle of democracy, uh, but I'm not sure, except for Athens, what we do think of as the cradle of a democracy. <laughs> but this, this is something that kind of in the progressive era got a little bit of a start in South Dakota, right? 
Well, I did. I mean, South Dakota in 1898 was the first state to adopt statewide initiative process. Um, a few years earlier, places like Nebraska and a couple of uh, uh, areas where the cities adopted this process. But the first time it, it was established in the state, state, statewide ballot op opportunity was in South Dakota in 1898. Right. By the way, I'm sitting here in Connecticut. Most of our, more of our listeners are from Connecticut than are from anywhere else. So a quick remember, reminder, we really don't have ballot initiatives. We, you, we use um, ballot measures for constitutional amendments only. Uh, there is one on the ballot in 2024 having to do with no excuse absentee voting. So you know, when we think about uh, ballot measures and ballot initiative in particular, it's often going to be because the voters believe that the legislative bodies in their state are out of sync with public desires. Um, and an obvious place for this, I mean, elected officials are really, really notoriously bad for at enacting reforms that affect elected officials in a way that they regard as negative. So term limits, age limits, things like that. That's one category of things that you're probably going to see in ballot initiatives because it ain't going to come from anywhere else. Is that fair? Well, it's a very fair statement. I mean, you know, lawmakers traditionally uh, have, have frowned upon the initiative process. They see that it takes away their power and authority. Uh, but you're spot on what you're talking about earlier is that, listen, the citizens being in Connecticut or Florida or wherever, you know, you don't want to get rid of all your lawmakers. You just say, hey, every now and then law, lawmakers are unresponsive to things I want, like term limits or, or uh, you know, um, uh, climate change or things that in many ways impact their power, like um, redistricting is concerned. So, so the lawmakers, you know, they, they they frown upon it. They don't like the process. They think that the people are taking away their power and authority. And what has to be remembered is that the initiative process is just simply another check and balance on representative government. It is not a replacement for it. Um, but even this election cycle, you know, the law, the reason we only have 24 states with the initiative process is because lawmakers are required to pass it, which they're not. But what you will see uh, is that tremendous amount of effort is being spent by state lawmakers to make the process more difficult in places where it exists. And there are actually a couple of ballot measures out there this election cycle that will you know, make the process more difficult to use. <laughs> ballot measures to make ballot measures harder to do. Think about that. When they needed something, they reached, it, reached for a ballot measure, even though they don't like ballot measures. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, practically, you know, there's 24 states where you can put together, put forward a ballot initiative, but practically it's, what, more like 17 when you take away the ones that have almost prohibitive roadblocks. That's exactly right. I mean, and that number is getting less and less every election cycle um, when lawmakers make it more difficult. And like, here's an example, like in Michigan, you know, way back, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, the progressives were trying to pass minimum wage uh, at the local level. But the legislature says, well, we don't like that. We don't want them setting this. So they actually passed a law saying that there's certain things that the municipalities can't do so they can control all of that themselves at the, at the state house. Um, but listen, we're heading in a direction now where I would say if nothing fundamentally changes, you know, I think the number of states that you could actually theoretically do a ballot measure will be down to like even a dozen. Uh, and in a time where we need ballot measures, uh, I refer to it as, a, as a safety valve. The people need an outlet to deal with some of these controversial issues uh, that the legislature just doesn't want to deal with. So if you take away that safety safety net and you reduce the ability for the people to use it, I, I, I believe that the polarization that we even see now is going to be increased a hundredfold. I mean, I, I think, you know, we, we see this also when, as I said before, public opinion and public policy don't line up very well. 
Uh, we know that in this country, you know, large majorities, according to polling, support some form of guaranteed abortion rights. Uh, large majorities uh, uh, support some kind of gun safety reform or some kind of restriction uh, on firearm ownership and use. Uh, very tough to get those things through legislatures. In the latter case, there's just a lot of money that can be spent uh, by the firearms lobby to defeat measures like this. I wonder if, and this may be a question that's impossible to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. I wonder if sometimes lawmakers are look at this stuff and go, fine, take us off the hook. You're right. We should do something about that. But I don't want to lose my seat by voting for it. So yeah, knock yourselves out. Do a ballot initiative and then it'll be on you, not me. Well, then, you know, listen, that's, that's very true. There are some examples throughout the history of the initiative process where lawmakers, whether it's abortion rights or it's a same-sex marriage or or tax limits or, you know, especially when it comes to tax and revenue issues where they don't want to be the ones creating or increasing taxes. They turn to the people and say, hey, listen, you guys, if you want to increase it, do it. I just don't want to look bad by increasing your taxes. So, no, they, you know, they, they, they use the initiative process as a scapegoat in many cases uh, when they don't want to deal with these issues. Now, one, one very specific example uh, about where the legislature just chooses not to listen to the people is term limits. You mentioned that earlier. You know, term limits has been one of the most prolific issues on the on the ballot uh, at the ballot. One ninety eight percent of the time, uh, at the you know, and and the people have made it very clear that they want term limits. Yet lawmakers, whether it's a local level or the national level, refuses to address that issue. And this is this is why I would argue we need a national initiative process. Uh, with the caveat that there are the right restrictions on it so that the people can deal with these issues even at the federal level that lawmakers choose not to deal with. Right. And I mean, when we say like a lot of people, I mean, Pew's numbers are eight in 10 adults, 79 percent favor uh, maximum age limits for elected officials. Um, similarly, I mean, term limits, 87 percent favor limiting the number of terms that members of Congress are allowed to serve. But this is an issue with no traction in Congress because, of course, they would have to live with the results and they don't like it. Um, I think another thing we should probably say is that one person's bad initiative is another person's great initiative. So I remember I was sort of a semi-conscious adult in 1978 when Howard Jarvis and a whole bunch of other people, uh, it was really one of the more heavily covered um, ballot initiatives, at least in my lifetime. It was called Prop 13. It was kind of a, a tax revolt initiative. It specially targeted the property tax in California. And I mean, from a lot of people's point of view, maybe from my point of view, it kind of hamstrung government in not necessarily a great way. But uh, as far as I know, people in California are very happy, uh, overwhelmingly happy in pulling to have their property taxes uh, held at a certain level. Uh, but yeah, what's your take on that? Well, listen, I think that you know, when you talk about, well, first of all, when Prop 13 passed in California, many people argue that that was the uh, resurgent of the initiative process because it, it showed that people really can make fundamental, tangible changes. Um, but you know, lawmakers, this is what, what's interesting about the ballot process, or the initiative process specifically. It doesn't forbid lawmakers from ever, you know, doing something um, uh, to counter it. For example, Prop 13. The lawmakers at any point in time can choose to put another constitutional amendment on the ballot to overturn Prop 13. But they know how popular it is, so it, they really spend more time arguing than how terrible it is instead of doing something about it. And you also make a very valid point when you talk about what I say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Listen, there are issues that have passed that I think are absolutely crazy, yet there's 50% plus one of the people who thought it was the greatest thing in the world. 
And that's the beauty of our country is that we do have differing opinions and views. And so I would argue that the initiative process, of course, is not a perfect lawmaking process, but it does give like if Republicans are control of the legislature, it gives, you know, the Democrats and progressives an opportunity to do something and vice versa. So, you know, Prop 13, I hear about Prop 13 all the time. But in the conservative world, they love it, think it's one of the greatest ballot measures that ever happened. Yet there's several people in California um, you know, who who would argue that it wasn't that good because it limits the amount of you know money that can go into other issues and other other things that the people want. Um, and the last thing I'll say about this is that when it comes to, like, for example, Prop 13, is that when the people speak, they speak. You know, the, the lawmakers should listen. For example, when lawmakers vote, when the people vote for lawmakers, okay, they show I, I've never heard of a lawmaker complain that oh, the people were too stupid when I when they voted for me. Okay. <laughs> I never hear them say that. But suddenly the voters get stupid when it comes time to vote on a ballot measure. It's just kind of one of those arguments that I just find is just just very, very childish and immature. So yeah, but there is that eye of the beholder thing. I mean, you and I probably agree agree about term. I know we do agree about term limits. I've read your CV, but um, the uh, you know, I mean, Americans also support requiring all voters to show government issued photo identification in order to vote, uh, and and that's at a high rate. It's Pew has it at seventy six to twenty two. Uh, I see some of the ways that that could be used to limit ballot access to people who are less advantaged or to make it just harder to vote. I'm not in favor of it being hard to vote. Um, So, you know, you see something like that. But let me ask you about a specific one that did pass. Uh, So a few years ago, uh, Oregon passed so-called measure uh, 110. Uh, This decriminalized a a list of what we would call hard drugs. It passed with 58% of the vote. Um, But it seems as though support has eroded since then. And and I look at that, and I'm just kind of playing sort of devil's advocate here. I mean, if in fact we say legislatures are mostly good, what they're good at probably is long debates about something in which pros and cons are weighed and maybe certain ideas come to light that don't naturally occur to people. And then, you know, kind of regulations review, like how are we going to implement this thing? How are we going to make it work? And most legislatures have a regulations review process uh, in where the, the lawmaking body kind of interacts with the executive branch. How are we going to create a structure where this works? And, and I wonder about something like 110. I'm not even saying it was a bad idea, but it does seem as though people are who voted for it in some cases are less happy with it than they thought they were going to be. So your thoughts on that? Well, listen, I agree with that. I, do, I did some work on uh, the Brexit campaign. And, you know, now, you know, the argument is, is if, if the vote was held again today, 80 percent of the people would vote to stay as part of the, um, you know, the European Union. So, listen, once again, lawmakers and passing laws you know, it's not a perfect science and people change, people's moods change over a period of time. I mean, you know, we had slavery, right? We had slavery for, and then finally, you know, we started using the initiative process and and ballot campaigns to try to abolish that and give greater rights to minorities. You know, so, so people, when people's sentiments change, you know, but the laws that govern their lives need to change as well. And so if, if, if Prop 110, if people are saying that, okay, well, unintended consequences, we don't really like it, two things very easily could happen. If the legislature is listening to, the, listening to that, they could put an amendment on the ballot for the people to overturn it, or the people themselves, whoever the proponent of 110 was, I mean, they actually could put another initiative on the ballot as well. So there's a check and balance on it. And so, you know, if we hate something and we're very unhappy about it, then the beauty of the initiative process, by the way, is that in Oregon, for example, the people have the ability to go out and change it if they want to use the initiative process. But but in states where the initiative process doesn't exist, um, you know, you look at like New Mexico, if the legislature was to pass something 
and the people hated what they what, you know what was passed they have no ability to do anything about it so once again the initiative process is a check and balance number two it is not a perfect lawmaking process just like the traditional lawmaking process isn't perfect but there's always a way to address these issues that arise uh, after an initiative passes and the legislature just needs to suck it up and deal with it on behalf of the people let me talk about some other possible impediments. So when we talk about direct democracy, it does have the kind of, you know, Robert the LaFollette ring of the progressive era. On the other hand, I don't know if a late 19th century progressive would be surprised to hear that in California, for example, it could cost $100 million <laughs> to run a campaign uh, on behalf of a pro proposition, which doesn't feel real grassrootsy progressive. I mean, it's just flat out expensive. I, I don't know. Do you have thoughts about that? Well, yes. Listen, first of all, you know, at the end of the day, no matter how much money it takes to get something on the ballot, Californians are the only people who get to vote for it, yes or no. No special interest can vote for it. You know, um, you, you know, you still maintain that ability to vote on it. In California, this goes back to what we talked about earlier. The reason it's so expensive to do it a ballot measure in California is because when the initiative process was first established in the early 1900s, you had unlimited circulation period. Your signatures are tied to a specific, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, people who voted for Secretary of State. And what has happened, though, is that as California has grown in, 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 uh, in size, so has the number of signatures that are required has grown. But the legislature has also shortened the amount of time that you have to collect those signatures. So, you know, if you're a citizen activist and you want to put something on the ballot and you need a million plus signatures, you know, it's very difficult to go out there and just voluntarily do it. You have to spend money to to try to get something on the ballot. Now, that's not always the case, but in about 90 percent of the cases, uh, that is that is the case now. And also very simple things. TV advertising is expensive in California. There's a whole host of issues that make California the most expensive place to, to do the initiative or to undertake an initiative. But once again, at the end of the day, only Californians get to vote one way or the other. Let's talk about another kind of impediment. Uh, as you said, there are uh, any number of states where the elected power structure is inimical towards uh, a lot of kinds of direct democracy, Arizona and uh, North Dakota, I think, are ones that you've singled out. But let's talk about Colorado for a second. This boggles my mind. I mean, somebody does have to word a ballot question. It's called, it's called a question for a reason. But explain what happens in Colorado, because it's kind of nuts to me. Well, in Colorado, uh, it's one of those things when, you know, people, as you were talking about, people complain about, oh, the ballot, this ballot language is so confusing. Well, in Colorado, the state legislature, not the state legislature, a commission under within the Secretary of State's office will write the ballot title, the ballot language. And, you know, and, and you know, the proponents do have the ability to challenge that if they want to, but it's very rare that they win. So, long, you know, the legislature and the Secretary of State's office in some states, you know, they do have the ability to write a ballot question that will either confuse the voters or give the voters doubt, um, which is why a lot of initiatives don't even pass in Colorado because when voters are uncertain about something, they'll vote no. You know, there has, you know, listen, it's, it's Colorado's process is one of the most laborious process, processes there is when it comes to initiative process. It's not a model that I would, I would want anyone to emulate, to be honest with you, but it does show the power of government. If the government is opposed to something, you know, they will not, they will do everything in their power to keep it from being on the ballot. Um, you know, everything like, you know, they'll, they'll decertify signatures because the, the signature collector wasn't a resident of the state or, you know, whatever the issue may be. So they're always looking for ways to make it more difficult. And Colorado, once again, is a perfect example where, the you know, the, the, the legislative bodies, as well as the executive branch, 
exert some power and authority over, you know, muddying the waters, as we say, um, uh, you know, before the people have the right to vote on something. Right. In North Dakota, I believe you've got to win in two cycles. <laughs> it's like you just prove it wasn't a fluke the first time. I mean, that strikes me as also a very deliberate attempt to impede all this. Well, it is. I mean, you know, I've always been an advocate, like whatever, whatever is good for the goose is good for the gander. So whatever the requirements are for the legislature to pass something, those should be the same requirements for the citizens to pass something, you know, uh, but lawmakers want to always believe it is, you know, there needs to be two standards, one for them, which is not that laborious, <laughs> and one for the people. Um, and so, yeah, these, these dual votes, you know, some people argue that, well, you know, you pass it this election cycle, and as you pointed out, maybe two years from now, you know, the voters may have changed their minds. But, you know, that, once again, limits the people's ability to be that check and balance. It's very frustrating for the people to have to wait or proponents to have to wait for two election cycles. So it's those kind of reforms or changes that the legislature has has passed that really reduces that number of 24 down to 17. So one of the kind of truisms about all this, particularly within political coverage, uh, is to talk about uh, ballot initiatives in terms of driving turnout. My sense is your mileage may vary. And a lot of it has to do what, with what academics would call the salience uh, of an issue. So, yes, I mean, in years past, if you had a gay marriage uh, question uh, on the ballot, chances are an awful lot of gay people and people who had very close friends and family members who are gay people, they're going to show up and vote, uh, even if they hadn't voted in previous cycles. I think this time around, probably a lot of these abortion rights ballot measures uh, are going to, once again, drive turnout in certain states. I'm not sure ranked choice voting does the same thing. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the connection between between those two things, turnout and a ballot measure? Well, yeah, I mean, traditionally, if you look at statistics, um, you know, ballot campaigns, well, initiatives specifically, not necessarily referendums put on the ballot by the lawmakers, but initiatives are usually a drive voter turnout because most of those issues, like it's, uh, you know, like abortion issues, uh, redistricting, term limits, things of this nature where, you know, a death penalty, whatever the issue may be, you know, people, you know, these are the issues that are typically the most controversial, those that have the most emotions associated with it. And so there are people out there who pick and choose which ballot they want to be on uh, as a way to drive voter turnout not just for their issue, but also for presidential elections, congressional uh, you know, elections, as far as you know, mayoral elections. This election cycle is going to be no different. I mean, you know, you, you know, I, I'm not a soothsayer, but my gut would be that it's going to be Trump versus Biden in the election. And the progressives are going to need whatever extra tools they can in key strategic states uh, for Biden to win, which is why if you put on an issue like, uh, uh, you know, abortion, that's going to drive voter turnout. I mean, it really is, especially among uh, women who definitely want their voice to be heard on this issue. So so it, it's premeditated in many ways. When people sit around and decide, I want to do a ballot measure, not everyone, but a lot of people say, okay, where's the best place to put it? Okay. And 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 historically, if they need an extra uh, an extra bump and, and the voting for a progressive or, or a conservative, then they will put that ballot measure uh, on the ballot specifically for that. Um, and I think you're going to see that this election cycle as well. Let me give you an opportunity to vent against my profession, because I, I think we might have it coming. <laughs> even, even I might have it coming. So, I mean, I would think that you probably think that the press does a pretty crappy job of reporting on this stuff. We're much better at person-to-person -person horse races. It's easy. 
I mean, it's easier for me to remember Howard Johnson than exactly what was uh, Howard Jarvis than what was in uh, uh, Proposition 13. But we like we like political horse races. We like we know how to do that. Often we don't pay that much attention to the ballot questions, which means that the voters don't even know the questions are there in some cases. So yes, I will give you 45 seconds to vent against uh, journalism. Actually, I'm not going to vent too much about journalism on this because, listen, what I, what I vent about journalists is that they don't do enough to cover issues that are being considered in the state legislatures. Okay, when an issue is put on the ballot by the people, you know, you do have the proponents pushing it, the opposition pushing it. It's all more transparent in the public domain. Uh, people argue about who's funding it, who's not funding it. So honestly, an initiative will get more more coverage than the traditional laws that are passed in the legislature. So if I was going to really get on uh, the legislature, I mean, on the on the media, it would be about doing a better job of covering what's actually happening in the state legislatures. Um, because when it comes to ballot measures or initiatives specifically, uh, the press typically does step up in many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases to cover it. All right. We should probably stop there. Although, I mean, we you've alluded to a couple, alluded to it a couple of times. One thing we don't do because we can't do is we don't have a national vote on a policy question like abortion or gun safety or anything like that. And I assume in order to do that, we'd have to amend the Constitution, which is also impossible to do these days. Well, it is at the federal level. It is almost impossible, and the, and the legislature is not going to do. The Congress is not going to do anything to make it happen. But, but I am a firm believer that you know we, as we all know, there's extreme polarization on both sides. Our country is in one of the worst shapes I've ever seen it since you know I'm, I'm 59 years old, 60 years old. And I think that if we had the initiative process at, at the national level, some of these issues could be dealt with in a way that would minimize this animosity, minimize this polarization. Um, and at least you know, give the people an outlet to be heard on these issues. And I think that's critical to the future of our country. All right. Uh, we're both the same age. No wonder we get along so well and we, have, we remember <laughs> the same things. Uh, thanks very much to uh, Dean Waters, founder of the Initiative and Referendum Institute at the University of Southern California. We'll take a break and then we'll tell you a story about Florida and restoring uh, voting rights to people who have had felony convictions. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers, so we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Vote for Mr. Rhythm, raise up your 
thank you, Ella Fitzgerald. But what if you can't vote? What if you lost your right to vote? You're deprived of it because you have a prior felony conviction. Uh, even though you've served your time, you've completed your sentence, it's a nonviolent felony, uh, maybe you still can't vote. Uh, somebody decided to do something about that. One of those somebodies was Desmond Mead, an executive director, the executive director of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Uh, what he did and what the people who worked with him did, they collaborated in 2018 on Florida's Amendment 4. Desmond Mead is joining us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show, Colin. So just give us a quick thumbnail uh, version of the story uh, of uh, what, what happened with Amendment 4. Well, man, I don't know how quick we can... Uh, I know it's a whole book for you. But. I know it's a whole book. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, there was a point in time where Florida was the worst state in the country as related to disenfranchising American citizens, and which means that once a person was convicted of a felony offense, they actually lost the right to vote for the rest of their lives. And at one point, Florida accounted for over a quarter of the total number of people in the United States who could not vote because of, of a felony conviction. At some point, you know, looking at the issue, realizing that, you know, there was a lot of power that was in the hands of just a handful of politicians to make that determination as to whether or not a person with a felony conviction should be able to vote. I thought that was way too much power because nothing speaks to citizenship more than being able to cast a vote. And, you know, to have only a handful of politicians be able to determine which citizen can and cannot vote. Uh, I really felt that that was way too much power for any politician to have, whether they're Democrat or whether they're Republican. It, it was totally irrelevant. Uh, you leave that in the hands of politicians, then you leave room for partisan politics to play the role in the decision process. And so we engage in what I thought was the second greatest act of democracy next to voting, and that was to actually launch a citizens initiative process um, where we put that decision into the hands of the voters of the state of Florida to make a determination uh, about second chances. And in uh, November of 2018, we were very successful. Um, I do want to say, by the way, um, that if you want to know more once we're done with this conversation, uh, Desmond Mead, I mentioned a book. It's called Let My People Vote, My Battle to Restore the Civil Rights of Returning Citizens. So let me ask you this. If I had a time machine that would enable you, 2024 Desmond, to go back and have a quick conversation, that would have to be a very quick conversation with Desmond in late 2017, early 2018, what would you warn your younger self about in connection with this drive? Do not underestimate the the power of, of politics. You know, um, when we when we engage in this initiative in Florida, the one of the most beautiful things about it was that we was able to elevate our issue above partisan politics, even above implicit racial biases, right? And while Florida was one of the hardest states to pass an initiative in requiring at least 60% of the voters to vote yes for uh, uh, the amendment, we actually was able to pass it with almost 65% of the vote. And when we looked at the number, that was over 5.1 million people who voted yes. And over a million of those individuals were Republicans, right? And so we 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 had a broad cross-section of support, people from all walks of life, all political persuasions. And I used to tell folks that, you know, when them 5.1 million people voted, they didn't vote based on hatred or, or fear but rather they voted based on love, forgiveness, and redemption. And we showed the world that love can, in fact, win the day. 
But the Desmond of today now realize that, you know, maybe I was a little bit naive to think that love would carry us through, uh, you know, beyond that and not really consider the role that politics can play. And after we passed that amendment in such a loving, beautiful fashion, the politics reared its ugly head once again and created um, uh, divisions that we're that we're still experiencing today. Right. Well, we should say how that happened. This was very heavily publicized nationally. Uh, Florida, law, Florida lawmakers made a law the year after the ballot initiative, uh, and it removed the right to vote if felons had, hadn't paid off their fines and fees. Yeah. Um, and, and that sounds simple, but what people didn't understand, maybe reading about it, is how easy it is to accumulate fines and fees while you're incarcerated, right? Well, well, I think it goes even beyond that, right? Because it's an issue that we're uh, that we're dealing with today in the courts, right? Uh, at the end of the day, what was the 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 main point in contention was the ballot initiative basically said that once a person completes their sentence, that they have the right to vote restored. And so the Florida legislature, what they did was determine that they wanted to define what completion of sentence meant. And so they included the payment of outstanding legal financial obligations. So basically they were saying, wait a minute, you can't get the right to vote back until you pay these legal financial obligations off. However, the big problem was that Florida did not have a system in place to inform a person how much they owe. Mm-hmm. So you, in one hand, you're saying that a person can't vote uh, until they pay off their fines and fees. But on the other hand, you're unable to provide them that critical piece of information uh, in order to comply with whatever standards that you, you set forth. And so it was a catch-22 situation. And it, 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 it caused uh, not only confusion, uh, but it, it, it brought on some lawsuits and it, it, it helped exasperate the problems that we're facing farther with voter engagement by now having the state of Florida arrest people uh, because maybe they didn't uh, pay off all of their legal financial obligations. And yeah. so we uh, um, um, we had to respond to that. But like I said, I want to go back to the point that I didn't realize that, you know, you would figure that politicians would respect the voters' uh, uh, wishes uh, but in the case of Florida, they had little to no respect of the wishes. And as a matter of fact, and what we've seen in Florida, that after every successful ballot initiative that does something positive for a community, Florida legislature would then go back and make it even more difficult for people or the citizens of Florida to engage in uh, um, the citizens' initiative process, right? I mean, they really found the ultimate catch twenty-two. You know, <laughs> you can't do it unless you paid your fines. Well, how much are my fines? Can't tell you. Uh, you know, um, another thing that you found out was that people and institutions that might have been presumably pretty friendly to what you wanted to do, for other reasons politics, basically, and uh, were not necessarily at least interested in having you do it right at that moment. I'm really talking about 2016. Uh, I'm talking about funders uh, of the the Clinton campaign in 2016 who were worried that your measure would drive uh, Florida conservative voters to the polls to vote against it and thus hurt her at the turnout level. That must have caught you by surprise. 
Yes, it, you know, it really did. You know, let me tell you, I, I was very naive going into this, you know, and I remember telling folks uh, a while back that if I would have known what I had to endure <laughs> during the ballot initiative, I may not have actually uh, started that process, right? But um, of course, you know, I was um, really looking at things from a, a from a pure perspective. And so I'm thinking that, it, listen, folks ought to be excited about people being able to participate in democracy, right? And it shouldn't be political and, and, and we wanted to elevate it above it, but we've seen politics play a role. You know, we've seen people against this because they perceive that, you know what, the people who are going to get their rights restored are mainly African-Americans who mainly vote uh, for the Democratic Party. And that was so far from the truth. Uh, um, as a matter of fact, I think it was the reality was the opposite. And then, of course, you had folks um, even on the Democrat side, that maybe that was their only reason for wanting to support this type of effort because they thought that they were going to get more votes, right? And so the politics did definitely uh, um, play a, a major factor in, in, in a lot of the things that we were doing, uh, getting funding, as you said, you know, thinking, well, maybe it's not the right time. Maybe we should do it a presidential year. Maybe we should do it an off year. And and it was all about politics and not about doing what was right. You know, when you talk about even the civil rights movement and, and asking the elders of the civil rights movement, what kind of polling or research did they do? And they would tell you they didn't do any of that. They just knew it was the time to do right. It was always now. And it was a time, the time to actually engage and allow people, American citizens, access to democracy, right, should not depend on, on politics. It should not depend on what party we think they may vote for or support. It should depend on the fact that democracy needs everybody's participation in order for it to be vibrant. It's beautifully expressed. So another thing you had to uh, consider was how to craft the language uh, of a ballot measure like this. Uh, and several factors come into play. One of them is pass passing constitutional muster. You actually have to, in fact, do a lot of the work towards a ballot measure like this uh, just for the purpose of getting that constitutional test. You know, you might have done all that work and uh, found out that it, you, you were ruled unconstitutional. But there's also a, um, a psychological component to language that determines often whether people like something or don't like it. You had to take that into account too, right? Oh my God! Yeah, like I said, it was definitely—I um, definitely learned a lot from it. You know, uh, on, like one of the things that 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 I learned was even just the use of one single word high can make the difference between night and day. One of the um, well-known voter psychologists, Dr. Phyllis Watts, she always talk about primal responses, right? How certain language can create a primal response within a voter and have them vote a certain way. Um, you know, we, we see cases in which it appears that people uh, vote against their self-interest, right? And, and those are things that we had to consider because in the state of Florida, you know, you have a very divisive state. You know, sometimes people say Florida is three states in one, right? And then we also know that Florida was a very critical state because of the role that it plays in national elections. Right. And and then you had a critical moment uh, or critical political climate to where it was volatile, you know. And so we had to be extremely sensitive as to the language that we were using. Like, for instance, we didn't say the right to vote because constitutionally there's not an explicit right to vote that's mentioned in the Constitution. Right. And, and, and there is that debate about whether it's a right or a privilege. 
Now we could put the right to vote out there and create a, a red herring so people could now get distracted by whether or not voting is a right or a privilege, or we can just say the ability to vote and just have everybody on board that say, you know what, that's right, people should have the ability to vote after they've served their time. And so we was able to do that. And I think that was one of the things that that played a role in us being able to get, you know, overwhelming number of people from all, the entire political spectrum to support our um, our initiative. Oh, Desmond Mead, I could go on. This is really fascinating stuff, but we've got to wrap this up. I do want to remind people that his book is uh, Let My People Vote. I also just realized you're a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. We had a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient on the show yesterday. I got to find a genius for tomorrow's show. Um, you know, we're on a really good streak here. Well, uh, can I can I one up this a little bit? Okay. Yeah, one up. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so last year, 2023, because of our efforts with uh, Amendment Four, uh, we were also nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize Woo. by the same organization who nominated Dr. Martin Luther King. Wow, that is impressive. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. This is terrific. Thank you for having me. All right. We'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to you about some of the less publicized ballot initiatives. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. So, uh, first of all, thanks to Cat Pastor, our technical producer today. The episode was produced by McCusker, the Wonder Kid. Uh, we are now going to uh, conclude with a conversation about some of the less publicized ballot initiatives, uh, maybe some of the ones that are a little bit surprising. And to do that, uh, we have uh, Ryan Byrne, the managing editor of the Ballot Measures Project at Ballotpedia. Let me just say... As a lazy journalist, uh, let me just give props to Ballotpedia. Uh, you guys do so much of the work <laughs> that people like me would otherwise have to do. And your stuff is always really accurate and helpful and contextual. And you seem to know more about ballot measures in Connecticut than I do, even though I live here and work here. So uh, thank you. Uh, thanks to everybody at Ballotpedia. Ryan Byrne. Great. Thanks. 
Yeah, we you know we love covering ballot measures. It's it's really our longest lasting project at Ballotpedia, and one of the main reasons why the organization was founded. Right, you really do a great job. But we're going to talk about some slightly, we might even say, sort of whimsical, uh, although not whimsical to the people who are proposing them. You've gone back into history. I mean, not through time travel, but you've looked back into history uh, to see some of the things that have been done in the past. There seems to be something of an obsession with the whole margarine versus butter question. I guess the first one was Oregon back in 1920, but not the last one. What's going on there, Ryan? <laughs> well, that's a fun one, right? So at Ballotpedia, we have these large data sets of historical state ballot measures ranging from 1900 or even earlier in some states to the present. So, you know, I was looking through this and just, you know, looking at different keywords that have kind of popped up through history. And when you're back in the 1920s through 50s, you start to see the word oleomargarine a lot. And, you know, we just use the shorter word now, margarine, you know, the butter substitute often derived from vegetable oils. And you start to wonder, well, why was margarine coming up so much in, you know, the early part of the 1900s? So there's this multi-decade conflict with these ballot initiatives regarding margarine. The first one was in Oregon in 1920. And, you know, you might be wondering in the contemporary era, why in the world people were voting on this? And once you understand the context and backstory, it starts to make a lot more sense. There was an economic conflict between different producers and different consumers. These measures were often described as a conflict between uh, the dairy and margarine industries um, or, you know, butter dairy producers and consumers who wanted the cheap margarine product. So, you know, <laughs> I think this still carries on today. You know, we're not we're not so much debating margarine anymore. We haven't seen this come up with ballot initiatives. There's no ballot initiative conflict about soy milk or oat milk yet, but we've seen that conflict continue. <laughs> yeah. It's on the way, <laughs> definitely. There's also, uh, there's got to be a ballot question eventually about whether or not you can't believe it's not butter, uh, but I don't think we've seen that yet. So let's do a somewhat more serious one and one that's much more contemporary too. Uh, ranked choice voting. Well, I see it's contemporary, uh, but in fact, it's this is like, I mean, it feels like a real 21st century thing. Not entirely, right? Not entirely. So, you know, the ballot initiative has played a prominent role in shaping electoral systems across the U.S. for, you know, over a century now. So uh, as you noted, we've seen a bunch of them recently, 36 local ballot measures since 2015, along with five state ballot measures. You know, it's passed in Maine and Alaska, passed once in Nevada. But I think, as you noted with your conversation with Dane, some states require two votes, so they're voting on it one more time. Um, it's going to be on the ballot in Oregon, likely in several other states as well. So I think what people don't realize about RCV, at least in the U.S., this might seem like a new concept. This is actually kind of the second wave. From the 1910s through the mid-1960s, there were about 90 ballot measures related to some form of ranked choice voting. It's not exactly the same as the current system being proposed, but it's similar and involves a ranking. Uh, only Interestingly, despite there being 90 measures from this period, only one of these systems has survived, and that's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where this previous wave of ranked choice voting is still very much um, hmm. 
those smarty, those smarty pants uh, in, in Cambridge. <laughs> yeah, no, I think what we know now is if you want ranked choice voting, you have to have a fairly sizable moose population. I don't know what the connection is, but Maine and Alaska, what else are we going to compete? That's a correlation with? I haven't noticed. Yeah. So that's something we'll look into. It may not be causation, though. Uh, there have been attempts to get uh, give people an incentive to vote more. Explain what uh, Arizona voters uh, at least considered doing in the form of Proposition 200 in 2006. <laughs> That's a good one. I think earlier you used the phrase whimsical initiatives. And really to do that these days, right, you need to um, have uh, some kind of self-motivation and self-funding. So back in 2006 in Arizona, there was this campaign called Arizonans for Voter Rewards. And they had a novel idea. <laughs> you know, we often hear that voter turnout is not very good in the U.S. and that it should be higher. So Arizonans for Voter Rewards thought of the idea of, well, let's reward a random voter with $1 million. It's a voter lottery, right? Uh, the man behind this initiative, uh, Mark Osterloff, his, that was very much his idea, boost voter turnout, provide a financial incentive. One argument that he made that I thought was kind of interesting was uh, get out the vote after efforts. Probably cost more than a million dollars, but $1 million would probably have a greater effect on turnout just by giving someone a million dollars. Opponents didn't really like this idea, right? So the idea of offering a financial incentive to vote, you know, I guess you you come to the idea that maybe people are just voting for the money and they actually have no idea what they're voting on. They're just taking the bet and hoping they win the million dollars. Um, so, you know, the people who did vote on this initiative in 2006 seemed to agree with opponents and two thirds of them shot down the one million dollar award. So very quickly, because we're almost out of time here, we're talking to Ryan Byrne, managing editor on the Ballot Measures Project at Ballotpedia. So imagine that you and I got into a big uh, argument about margarine and butter. Let's say we had that argument in Iowa because there's a lot of cows in Iowa. And let's say that we decided let's settle that with a duel. Uh, actually, in 1992, voters addressed that whole question of dueling in Iowa, which I, I wouldn't have guessed was a major thing anyway. Iowans seem so, you know, agreeable. But what did they do about that? <laughs> well, there's actually a number of state constitutions that historically prohibited dueling or they prohibited, as in the case with Iowa, you couldn't duel and hold office. So if we got in a duel, neither of us would be able to run for office thereafter in Iowa. Um, in 1992, voters voted to get rid of that ban. So you can now duel in Iowa and hold office. Well, probably not because Iowa doesn't let you hold office if you're charged with murder or manslaughter or attempted murder. And dueling would probably count as at least attempted murder. Well, if uh, I just winged you, if I just winged you, not necessarily. Anyway, we have to stop there. But yeah, so I don't know what happens when you try to uh, have the touring company of Hamilton go to Iowa. Don't ask me. Ask Brian, Ryan Byrne, the managing editor of the Ballot Measures Project of Ballotpedia. I think we have to say a goodbye right now. But thanks once again to Cat Pastor and to McCusker, the Wonder kid and let's have Matt Farley remind us about margarine versus butter. Should you eat margarine or should you eat butter? That is a very difficult question to answer. Some people tell me margarine is healthier than butter, but other people tell me butter is healthier than margarine. Most people though agree that butter tastes much better. And so I say, just eat the butter, forget about the margarine. Unless you really, really, really like margarine. In which case, I don't care, do whatever you want to. Me personally, I prefer the butter over margarine. 
But some people tell me I'm gonna die if I keep eating butter And if I want a taste that's at least similar to butter I should eat margarine And then I won't die as soon as I would have died If I had just eaten the butter Cause the butter is gonna give me a heart attack Oh, so many tough decisions to make in this life